Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, I'm trying something new. So it's a roundtable, which I've done before, but it's a two-part roundtable. I thought these next two chapters went together with some interesting themes. So I record half of the roundtable for this week and half for next week. This week, we are covering a Catelyn chapter where we see the Clash of Kings really begin to take shape. So to join me for part one of this two-part conversation, Val Garver, a medieval historian who specializes in children and women, Carol Parrish Jameson, a medievalist who specializes in knights and knightly codes and medieval literature, and a new guest for the first time joining me, Dr. Gabrielle Story. Gabby is a specialist in queens and women at court in the medieval period. So, without further ado, here is Carol, Val, and Gabby. So, the listeners know our voices. I'll just introduce myself. Uh, I'm Anthony. I'm Val. I'm Gabby. And I'm Carol. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Let's open this up to sort of Kat's role in this. Um, You know, I think she's trying to play peacemaker. Um, she's also trying to represent her son who's at war. Uh, she also seems to be kind of the adult in the room, uh, with two squabbling brothers. What, I'm just kind of curious to hear you, you, you all talk a little bit about Kat's role in this chapter. Yeah. I mean, this chapter, I think really emphasizes what a medieval noblewoman would have been like in terms of all those different roles that they have to play. They need to be a negotiator and a mediator. They might be sent off to be an ambassador and have to kind of navigate that role against men who are um, being hostile. You know, obviously the some of the lords at uh, Renly's court don't really respect her and what she has to say. But I think what's really clear actually through her point of view is how much she values her role as a mother how much she's thinking about her children and wants to be back with her children mm. and the difficulties of being away. What about you, Carol? I'm I'm curious, like, this is all sort of a very formal event that, you know, mm-hmm. sort of displays of chivalry. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how often we, we would expect a woman to play this role almost on yeah, the battlefield, right? Right, she is. She is um, right there on the battlefield. And I think in it's the previous chapter where um, she, I don't remember if she's thinking or says this, but Rob was going to send, I think, the great John Umber to do this job. And she thinks to herself how horrible he would have been at it. So she seems very confident <laughs> right. uh, in her abilities. But that was actually a question that I wanted to have uh, to um, pose to the historians here is um, – uh, to offer up, if you guys can think of any examples of real medieval women who might have negotiated in this way. I have plenty of examples in my mind of women who negotiated on behalf of their sons to enable their sons to, you know, to advance to the throne. But actually to be like on a battlefield this way, other than as a mere observer, as Renly ends up making her be. Um, or there, can you guys think of examples? It's. I think it's a tricky question because at least... Um the period of the middle ages that I'm most expert on, it would 
we, they're not really examples that I can think of. I couldn't either. I couldn't either. <laughs> and when I think about the later middle age, I think Gabby would be the expert mm-hmm. here, but I couldn't really think of anything like truly with a battlefield with a parley like this. This just seemed no. very unusual to me, but I don't know. What do you think, Gabby? The only obvious one that jumped into mind, which isn't really a battlefield, is Eleanor Aquitaine when she rebelled mm-hmm. against her second husband and um, that part with her sons and she's kind of like fleeing away and um, before henry captures her and that's the only really slight comparable one because she is a woman acting on behalf of her sons and she mm-hmm. does um have that political mm-hmm. role as a mother and as a queen but it's not necessarily a parlay between two kings it's if anything from the little detail we've got, it would be a kind of parlay between Henry and the sons, mm-hmm. you know, kind of positing the mm-hmm. son's case against her husband. Yeah, there's a case in the Carolingian Civil War where um, a female relative of the brothers, there's three brothers who are fighting in this war. She somehow seems responsible for kind of like um, raising like a siege at a town and is basically ends up not being able to do it but that's one of the only cases i can really even almost think of of a woman being associated with it and it doesn't even appear necessary it's it's debatable like what was her role in that exactly um so i think that's it's tricky although you know it is one of those things where i think i like martin's imagination here where there's something that isn't really in the the historical sources but he he creates something i think that's one of the nice things about the the book, the, the kind of what ifs are the things that one wonders, like, if we kind of think about, like, their future, like, how would this be recorded in history books? Obviously, it's going to depend, like, who is the winner. <laughs> you can imagine that, like, Caitlin's role here, yeah. I quite like that he focuses on it because it's the kind of thing that would probably get left off. Right. Right. Very yeah. possible. Like, it wouldn't be there, you know? So. And she's so effective at it. He shows, I mean, she she doesn't succeed because I think no one could succeed um, with these two. But I feel she is as effective as anyone could possibly be. And I, I also like that Martin offers that possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's so interested in the stuff that happens before the battle and the stuff that happens after the battle. We rarely see a battle. You know, this, is, this book is called A Clash of Kings, right? <laughs> and this is sort of the closest thing to a clash that we get. It's it's two brothers exchanging wits on the battlefield. And then Kat is, you know, Kat's sort of the, the POV character here. Um, but you're right. If, if, if this was sort of written down by a maester... And you know, recounted two hundred years after the fact, would Cat even be in the story? Probably not. Yeah, I'm thinking about the role of the the maester and the uh, the minstrels and storytellers. And Tyrion, after the Battle of Blackwater Bay, has a comment to that effect that he won't, despite how well he's done, he will yeah. be left out of the history. So okay, yeah, right. so if you're not the conventional um, hero type, then you wouldn't be mentioned. Sure. sure. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. 
Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Why don't I go ahead and jump into my synopsis of this chapter, and then we can uh, fill in the blanks in our conversation. Catelyn observes the Baratheon brothers parlay. Renly offers Storm's End. Stannis offers to name Renly his heir, but neither is willing to give up the Iron Throne, and the brothers decide to settle the matter on the battlefield. Cat decides that she'll return to River Run, but... Renly delays her. He intends for her to see the battlefield and know what happens to traitors. Cat retreats to a sept to pray. Uh, Val, let's start with you. What interested you most about this chapter? Um, there were a number of things that really struck me about this chapter. Um, and some are like smaller kind of observations. But overall, I guess the thing that most struck me was how Catelyn kind of observes how younger people do things or don't do things. <laughs> so she spends time, you know, pondering um, the ages of Stannis and Renly, and she mm. thinks about her own son's age. And she's sort of comparing, you know, obviously favoring Rob and saying, oh, even though he's 15, he he's better than they are kind of he's more has more self-control um so that kind of struck me but um some smaller things that struck me um that i feel like i didn't somehow remember from the the first time i read the book was that um renly talks about how he tried to get marjorie to be married to robert baratheon i had somehow <laughs> yeah. completely forgotten this <laughs> i think the the tv show version somehow stuck more strongly in my head um and i thought that was something interesting to kind of think about is that the way she's used as a pawn here. Um, and then I guess another observation, this is a small one is that I was really struck by the descriptions of storm's end. So there's this impressive kind of description of it talking about the stones and the wall and how 
it's so uh, it's 40 feet thick and nearly 80 yeah. <laughs> and just this amazing thing and what it reminded me of actually it kind of reminds me of like what a great pastiche historical pastiche game of thrones is because it reminds me of how the kind of classical greek cultures thought of what the mycenaeans built so i'm thinking of like the walls at mycenae which oh. they thought the cyclops built right and so it's this idea of like this magnificent thing that um was built in the past and how did they do it and it's kind of wondrous you get this a little too i think with the old english poem the ruin although it's a, i think mm -hmm. also a little bit different yeah so th those are just i mean i didn't have a big observation i feel like i just had small observations <laughs> i feel like that's so important though that um like the, the backstories and the story behind how storm's end was built yeah you know, i think it's those little things that um that help martin just create the world that he creates i'm so glad you brought that up yeah, let me just read this passage here, and uh, I won't read the entire thing, but I thought that was really interesting. The song said that Storm's End had been raised in ancient days by Durin, the first Storm King, who had won the love of fair Eleni, daughter of the sea god and the goddess of the wind. On the night of their wedding, Eleni had yielded her maidenhood to a mortal's love and thus doomed her to a mortal's death. And her grieving parents had unleashed the wrath and sent the winds and the waters to battle down Durin's hold. His friends and brothers and wedding guests were crushed beneath the collapsing walls or blown out to sea. Elenise sheltered Durin with her arms so that he took no harm. And when the dawn came, he declared war upon the gods and vowed to rebuild. So in their mythology... They're not trying to appease the gods. They're at war with the gods. I thought that was fascinating and maybe tells you a little bit about sort of the Baratheon view of things, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the arrogance, right? <laughs> right. And it, and it's interesting, too, that in that narrative, it's, a, it's the woman who's protecting the man. And this is a chapter where a woman is coming in and trying to promote peace. Maybe I'm reading mm -hmm. too much into it, but that struck me as well. Well, and you've got the, the god and the mortal uh, wedding. I, I think that's a, something that uh, Tolkien likes to play with. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the woman is above the station of the male. Mm -hmm. uh, and she ends up sort of forsaking immortality to be with the man or something along those lines. I, I don't know. I, I thought that was it's an interesting thing what Martin does sometimes instead of showing us a battle, a great battle, he'll show us sort of cat waiting for the brothers to arrive at the parlay. It's like it's a really sort of you think an uneventful thing, but because the story is so patient, it allows him to fill in the mythology of the world. I was thinking about how with, with Tolkien, though, it's a lot of that mythology is separate, you know, it, yeah. afterwards. And, and for Martin, he just he weaves it in so yeah. seamlessly that sometimes I think we don't notice it as much as I'm, we I should. I prefer Martin's method in this particular <laughs> case. Right? I, Val, you did say one thing that I, I wanted to either interrogate or push back on or sure. may, maybe, maybe you can convince me. I don't know if Marjorie's being used as a pawn here. I think... If I can read between the lines, Loris is in Renly's ear, and, and maybe both Loris and Marjorie are kind of ambitious. Yes. And trying to get Marjorie closer to power so that they can all be closer to power. I'm not, 
I'm not sure that she's a pawn in this. I mean, I guess on the surface, she, you know, she's they're trying to find a match for her, but they want the they want her to be queen of the entire kingdom. Yeah, no, and I think that is correct. I think that's somehow it's not on the page here, but it's definitely earlier. You see it and later for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that the reader either would figure have figured out by now that Loris and Marjorie were kind of manipulating Renly um, or, or cajoling him or something, um, or they would figure out, figure it out eventually. Um, but what was interesting here is that she's discussed as a pawn by these men. And they, uh. they, they, it, to me, it like really struck me as like a kind of like a fascinating, like contrast to cat. It's almost like a commentary on what cat is experiencing here they're not really crediting her in an appropriate way. Like she's smart and she knows what's going on. And she actually seems to be like the smartest person in the room. I mean, I know they're outside, but the smartest person in that parlay, right? Um, She kind of gets the situation in a way, in a more crafty way than they do based on kind of experience and patience and self-control and not losing your temper about things. And what's interesting is like, they just don't listen to her. But at the same time, it's kind of this, I think the sign of like, they're really not smart enough to listen to the women because they think Marjorie's a pawn. Like, so I thought that was like fascinating yeah. that um, they thought that she was some kind of, I don't know that like they, that they, that Renly actually thinks he's calling the shots, like, <laughs> which might speak to how clever Marjorie and Loris are. I don't know, but yeah, but it's so in a sense. Yes, I agree with you, but I'm not sure that others are completely onto that. That's kind of what was interesting here. I well, thought. and I think Stannis says he, you were trying to get her to be one of Robert's whores or something. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly Stannis doesn't have a high, <laughs> a high view of this woman. <laughs> no. <laughs> Gabby, uh, topic for conversation or what most interested you about this chapter? So, I picked up on quite a few little things and two of them are to do with sexuality which maybe isn't too surprising uh, because that's my go-to with um, work generally but just also with thrones because there's so much you can uh, pick out of it but what I found interesting and building on from that little exchange between uh, Renly and Stannis is when uh, Renly kind of goes oh you'll be pleased to know she came to me a maid and Renly uh, uh, sorry, and then Stannis then goes, but in your bed she's like to die that way. And yeah. obviously from this point on, we kind of know that Renly's not one for piety. You know, he's not one of these monkish kings who's, uh, you know, not going to sleep around at all. You know, we've uh, really got the sense of... Uh, yeah, he, he says he hasn't prayed in ages or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So therefore we've then got that implication that Renly's now what we would now call homosexual or gay and so forth and therefore that he's not going to be that interested in Marjorie or in women more widely and obviously we see how his relationship with Loras and others develop and I just found that little exchange because again it's always the detail with Martin you know that little yeah. exchange which you might just gloss over as part of the conversation um yeah really struck me I could be corrected on this, but I think this is the clearest indication that the books ever give us about the fact that Renly's gay. And I think Martin has has said, yes, he is. And yet the show, I mean, there's nothing as explicit as what we see in the show. 
it's just sort of this subtext in the books. Yeah. And I mean, when I was noting down observations, I was kind of thinking, you know, do we go with bisexuality or do we go with homosexuality? And it's, again, you don't always get those clear indications in the book in the same way as they, you know, really do use uh, sex in the TV show to really sell and make clear people's orientation or people's behavior. Hmm. Do you think that... All right, so I, I'll i be honest. There is a little bit about Renly that, like, like wins me over. <laughs> like, I, like, I know that he's... I know that he's uh, kind of full of himself and, you know, all of this business. But when he makes the claim that, you know, this is kind of a stupid rule that the oldest is the oldest brother. It should be the best suited brother. And then he goes through all the all of the reasons why he should be king. And I'm... I sort of as a modern reader, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I, I could see that. That that is kind of a stupid rule. Maybe, maybe, maybe you do have the right of it, Renly. Renly's the popular one, though, doesn't it? I think, isn't it? Like this really yeah. shows. This exchange just yeah. shows how different they are. Yeah, exactly. Like if it, if I had to choose a king between Stannis and Renly, I'd be mm, maybe Renly. <laughs> I don't know if I want some guy who's just converted to some you know, red goddess religion, uh, who's setting people on fire. Renly just <laughs> likes to party and have a good time. I, I think I would prefer, of the options, I think Renly's my guy. Yeah, and I think it also says something about, like, as, speaking here as the early medievalist, it mean primogenitor wasn't the only model in the, the whole of the Middle Ages, right? So in a sense, like, when he criticizes it, you, it makes me think things like, well, maybe partable inheritance wasn't so bad. Because it provided opportunities for each son to have sort of a piece of things and maybe in a sense like Renly's argument might win out, right? Whichever person is the most capable may mm. end up being the most powerful. Although, of course, there's downsides, right, to that that model as well. And he he obviously isn't advocating for that. He's like, I want the whole pie. <laughs> and it also helps to have the biggest army. Exactly. Yeah. And further, he does point out, well, Robert Baratheon is a usurper as well. So if you really, you know, if you really begin thinking about it, you know, maybe he does have some claim, at least in his mind. So, Carol, let's continue with you. What struck you as most interesting about this chapter? I'm so glad that Gabby mentioned the sexuality. Um, So being the the, um, I think you were both historians and being the literature person, I um. Sometimes Martin has little details that we overlook, and I want to talk about that peach and the symbolism of, of the peach, <laughs> yeah. uh, because I do think on the surface, it um, it, it obviously it's a, a symbol of his sexuality, but, um, but I also think that that peach kind of, uh, it represents Renly's, Renly's brand of chivalry in a way and his cavalier attitude, and when he reaches in and pulls out that peach, of course, Stannis and the men expect uh, expect a sword, and it's such a mocking gesture. And then he's quick to point out to him that this peach is from Highgarden, and of course yeah. he he has the support of Highgarden. So what a you know what a subtle little stab. Just for folks who don't remember this little exchange, because I don't think this mm-hmm. is in the show. It isn't. Yeah, I look back to see. They're, the brothers have met to parlay, and they I think that they both kind of have exchanged barbs, and uh, it seems like they're not going to reach any kind of agreement. And Stannis is getting more and more angry, 
and Renly reaches in his coat and they think he's going to pull out a sword and he pulls out mm-hmm. a peach and he offers it to he does. To, yeah. to his brother. And I think that this just enrages Stannis even more. It does. And it was a dangerous gesture. It's not unlike what happens in Le d'Arthur that sets off the final battle between Arthur and Mordred. Someone pulls out a sword because there's a snake on the ground. And just yeah, it's just a mistaken gesture that it really... Um, someone could have acted very rashly when they saw him reach in, thinking that he would be pulling out a dagger. Um, but he's just so cavalier uh, in his in all of his attitudes that uh, I just think it kind of represents his his brand of chivalry, sort of thin-skinned when it comes down to it, and very showy and flashy, and just um, kind of deliberately out, uh, I think, to um, to annoy Stannis. Yeah, I love that you brought this up, Carol, because I was really struck by the peach, too, Um, just because, um, you know, there's been some work. um, I'm thinking especially of like there's an article by Noah Bland, um, who's an early medievalist on like how desirable peaches were and peach cultivation. Mm -hmm. Like, so I think, you know, I love that it's a peach. It's a highly desired fruit, right? I really like that. Yeah. Um, So it's like a special kind of fruit that he got from Highgarden. So I love that. Mm -hmm. But I did wonder about like kind of literary illusions, right? I know there's so much meaning packed into some kind of fruits. So would you say the peach has a kind of literary meaning in like medieval literature? Yeah, I've tried to look for in medieval literature and I, I came up short. I've, I've looked at pears as sexual symbols in medieval literature. Gabby, do you have any insight on that? No, not on peaches, but I'm just thinking it <laughs> seems like such a better olive branch than an actual olive, doesn't it? I mean, yes. a nice juicy yes. peach. <laughs> it does, it does. Uh, yeah, but no, I, I haven't come across anything else in terms of allegories for peaches. Right. I did find mm. in, um, in some cultures it's a symbol for a long life, which is uh, ironic considering, mm. <laughs> considering the outcome here. Um, so, no, I, I wish I could have found more about that. I think, though, that... Um, in later literature, certainly we see peaches used uh, used uh, symbolically. So I think it's it's probably some kind of indication of sexuality. On the surface, though, it does kind of remind us that High Garden is kind of the breadbasket for King's Landing, which has been choked off, and right. so. It's, it's a little bit of a power play to show Stannis, I have the support of Highgarden. I've got all the resources of the kingdom at my disposal. And right. here is sort of the, you know, the, the, the gem of the garden. You know, you should always try a peach. What does he say? Like, if, if it's ever offered, you should always try Because you never know yeah. when you're going to get offered another peach, right? <laughs> I think that there's something about that to say, I've got the resources to win this war. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it definitely underlines his sort of alliance with with Highgarden, um, and certainly I think plays into like Cat's conception that the two of them should just try to get along because they each have different things, right, that they could bring to the table that would make them more powerful together than just united. But of course, you know, she can't <laughs> she can't pull that off. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's move to questions here. Did you all have questions for group discussion? I guess my question is relates to like one of my sort of minor observations, which is the this focus on age. And I guess it just re-struck me again that Rob is supposed to be 15 in the book. And 
I don't know, like he's not a point of view character, so mm-hmm. we don't really know what he's thinking. Um, we only know what others think of him. But to me, it just seems kind of like odd. And it's one of those things where I actually thought maybe the TV show did it better, like made him made him an older character. Um, hmm. I find the 15 like, I don't know. I just wonder, like, does sometimes like like it's one of these aspects of the world that Martin built that it just doesn't somehow quite ring true to me. And I suppose this is also because I should admit I have a 15 year old. So (laughs) (laughs) this really, I think struck me like a reading at this time, now having a child at that age that you just think, Hmm. And I was struck by this, like in in the coming chapter, I know there's an emphasis that Sansa is 12. So it's kind of a similar thing there. Um, And I also have a 12 year old and you just think, really, like, this is interesting. And I'm sure people could argue things like, oh, you know, they have a different life experience. Mm -hmm. They had to do it. They had to rise to the occasion. I think there's something to it. But I just kind of wondered what others thought of this, because some of the characters are just so much younger in the books than Mm -hmm. I then apparently seemed believable. Or maybe it was that it was really hard to cast. I don't know if this was like a practical choice on the part of the showrunners or it's like a something else. But to me, it seems like it was a smart move to kind of make a lot of the characters older than they are in the books. And so here it just really struck me, especially because Kat is so focused on the ages, right? That Renly and Sandus are in their 20s and things like that. So I don't know if that struck anyone else. It, mm-hmm. it has struck me from the beginning <laughs> of, of reading the novels um, years back. Uh, that's something that's always been problematic to me. I wonder if, and now I don't know how much of this uh, enters into martin's research but sometimes you get a biblical story of a boy who sort of acts above his age and i'm thinking like a king david mm-hmm. and yeah. so you know sort of modern critical view of the these stories is oh, well this is all a story about propaganda this is all meant to justify king david's rise to the throne over and against over and against saul and so, you know, he can do no wrong. And, you know, Saul was, you know, possessed by the devil. And, uh, you know, at every turn, David tried to make peace. And uh, even though he was the youngest brother, you know, he was ordained by God. And I almost get the sense that, um, that you know, I, I'm not the first to say this, but these stories are meant to justify someone who was very ambitious, who rose to power and um, we almost see another sort of bleeding in the next chapter. We'll, we'll save this for a little bit later. But there is some sort of magical mystique around Rob. And you almost have to start to invent stories to explain how something so unlikely could happen. Um, with, with, Dave, with David, it's like he killed a giant with the help of, you know, divine intervention. He killed a giant. Um so why wouldn't you want that boy to be king? Uh, with Rob, it's a little bit different, but I, I almost think you have to reach into ancient mythology to make sense of someone like Rob. Yeah, I'd agree. I agree. Mean, you reminded me of was Alexander the Great, so who was a great hero, I think, oh, for many ages. So it kind of reminded me a little bit of him too. What were you going to say, Gabby? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say Philip Augustus becomes king of France when he's 15, and he's a great military success Mm. for the Middle Ages. So whether uh, that was a figure that struck Martin when he was writing, I don't know. But I completely agree with 
both Belle and Carol that when you read about Robert's 15, you do get that modern concept of a 15 year old in your head. And I think if we'd had, you know, a slightly gangly looking Rob on Game of Thrones, we would have had a very different kind of house he goes to the King of the North. Like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know? So yeah, aging up was the right thing to do in that respect. But I think it's, it's not too far from realism to have a 15 year old king in the books but i can completely grasp how that feels so strange for us as readers to think about now i have in my hands a book by valerie garver women and aristocratic culture in the carolinian world (laughs) which i've been reading uh to my great joy and i was wondering if you got a little bit of are there shades of charles the bald and his sort of civil wars against his brothers did, did any of that come to mind when you were reading this chapter? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, actually, I've been really struck by how Carolingian, actually, um, the entire book series is in a way. Um, and so, yes, it definitely struck me. And a lot of times I see a lot of parallels to the Carolingian Civil War. And, I mean, I think Charles is a good example here. Uh, I mean, he's older, but... Um, than, than Rob here. But it is an interesting thing. And also, like, what I also kind of like with a parallel here is that um, in some senses, Charles the Bald might seem like the underdog of the three brothers who are embroiled in this war. Um, but he actually comes out okay. And it's in part because one could argue he's smart enough to ally with his other brother. The, so the two younger brothers sort of team up against the older brother um, and make an alliance. And so in that sense, like that's smart, but also that he has a mother who, at least in the sources, Ju- her name's um, uh, Judith, that she's uh, like kind of like helping him is there's a sense of that. Like it's not um, as explicit, hmm. obviously, as what you see here with Rob and, and Catelyn. But yes, I would say, I think you do see that. Um there is, I think, a way you can kind of parallel the two of them mm. um, in interesting ways. And I also think, like, there's another way to look at it, too, with, like, Renly and Stannis. I was thinking, like, Stannis is kind of aggrieved that he didn't, he wasn't given more, right? He, Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't, he wasn't given the the castle and the lands around the castle that he thought was rightly his. He wasn't given the status that he thought he deserved yeah and it's like this um so these carolingian brothers are often like kind of vying with one another about the best pieces of the pie Mm. or who has what and all of this um because while like one king might be ruling like louis the pious um these brothers father was ruling he kind of almost in a way like assigned his son's locations to look after and then the question becomes well which one which location is the best and Mm. like how should it be and we know during louis the pious's lifetime he was very troubled by his sons and their unhappiness with their lot um Mm. and what they were receiving and how they were treating him and then there was the added difficulty which we we don't see here in this situation in game of thrones but the added difficulty that um he had four living sons through only three mm. will um, survive him but he had three sons by his first wife and then charles the ball by his second wife and that causes trouble too so i mean i think yeah there's a lot I, I i definitely appreciate the parallel yeah i would agree ren stanis says at one point I, i'd like to hear you all weigh in on this he says kings have no friends only subjects and enemies 
I mean, I guess it really kind of shows you Stannis's view of what it means to be a king. But I, I, I don't think Renly would agree with that in the slightest. I don't think Rob would, or, or uh, King Robert would. What, what would you, how would you answer Stannis in this way? Stannis is a bitter man who's isolating himself. I, I understand what he's saying or what he, uh, in a different context, it might be that you can't get too close to anyone or be too trusting because you're in this position of power, which also makes you vulnerable. But um, to, to me, he's just such a bitter man that he's isolating himself and self-defeating, except for placing this great faith, of course, in the Red Priestess. Yeah, I guess I would agree with Carol. Um I think this it, this does say more about Stannis. I would almost say to Stannis, well, maybe that's the kind of king you will be, but other kings, I don't think necessarily the case because we have so many examples of kings from the Middle Ages who relied on like close advisors and, um, you know, and I'm not sure that they, they are friends in the same way that say like I, we are friends with our friends now, um, but they had this idea of, you know, I'm a kid, yeah, a friendship, um, as part of it as a special bond. And so I would say, I think this is more about Stannis and his view of things. <laughs> but I don't know what Gabby thinks. I mean, when we've been talking about Stannis, the image of him from the TV series has always just struck in my head. You know, he was never an appealing character in a way, was he? He was always, <laughs> um, you know, that he was isolated. He was unlikable. The Iron Throne is mine by right. All those that deny that to my foes. Old realm denies it from dawn to the wall. Old men deny it with their death rattle and unborn children deny it in their mother's wombs. No one wants you for their king. You never wanted any friends, brother. But a man without friends is a man without power. For the sake of the mother who bore us, I will give you this one night to reconsider. Strike your banners. Come to me before dawn, and I will grant you your old seat in the council. I'll even name you my heir, until a son is born to me. Otherwise, I shall destroy you. Look across those fields, brother. Can you see all those banners? You think a few bolts of cloth will make you king? No. The men holding those bolts of cloth will make me king. I think it, he's quite a difficult character to really try and garner sympathy for, with perhaps the exception of his daughter, and then obviously that all goes wrong. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he is, he's not one you would want as a king at all. I mean, I think that Renly's view on this would be a king has to make friends, and and these are all kind of... Maybe political friends or political arrangements, but that's what politicking is. You you make alliances. This is why Rinley has the peach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. St- Stannis is the best Stannis can do is onions from the onion night, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's, and that's I mean great. we see that with 
Ren again with Renly, like he's surrounded by this lavish court with all of these friends. Again, it's really the popular boy's court in a sense uh-huh. because mm-hmm. it's youthful, it's cultured. He's got allies from you know, he obviously gives his little list of where he's got all his troops from and everyone uh-huh. else. And you know, you do get the sense from him that he would be the victor potentially because he's got the friends right. and the allies, right? So, um, we've been talking about. Cat and Renly and Stannis. Um, there is another woman at the parlay, and that's Brienne, who has just been newly not knighted but appointed to the King's Guard or the Rainbow Guard or whatever Renly is calling it. And I'm just curious to hear you reflect on her place at Renly's side. It was interesting for me to hear um, or to read how Catelyn is viewing her, to see her through Catelyn's eyes. And Catelyn has this immense pity for her because she realizes mm. that, that the, you know, she's Brienne is immensely loyal, but she's also in love. And Catelyn is able to see that. So uh, I, I felt for Brienne in this uh, in this chapter. And it was I liked seeing her through Catelyn's eyes. Yeah, through Cat's eyes, it's like, well, she'll do anything to touch him. Mm-hmm. Even even if she knows that you know it will be unrequited, she'll even like you know dress him in his armor and do the work of a squire, which is below a knight or something. I don't know if that's what motivates Brienne, but it's certainly what Cat sees as Brienne's motivation. I don't know if maybe Cat is overly feminizing Brienne, or if this is maybe what Brienne really wants. I think it's hard to tell, but I also think that the way of understanding it, um, and I think it's like a good setup for what's to come, like the criticism of the knights that's coming in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. I think it's a nice like foil to that because what you see is Brienne is like literally willing to do anything for him. And, you know, I mean, Kat interprets this as like she might be sort of debasing herself, but I think there's a way of thinking about Brienne, especially from the earlier chapters and what's to come, of thinking that for her just being recognized for who she is and what she's good at just is something that she responds to um, and with a kind of like deep, deep loyalty. And so I think, okay, sure. Yes. Maybe she's in love with Renly. And I think that's quite possible actually, but I also think there's a sense in which he's treating her with a kind of dignity for who she is Mm. that others have not accorded her. And that could produce a similar kind of, like absolute loyalty. Um, so I, I like that Carol pointed out, it's very interesting to see her from Kat's eyes. Cause it, I mean, I think she's one of the more interesting characters to see from others perspectives because they're, they're just are different takes on her mm-hmm. and that makes her a kind of more interesting character in some ways, I think. Yeah. And I think what was two things really struck me rereading that bit is one, how ugly she's described. Like, I kind of forgot yeah. how um, oh, yeah. the detail they gave to her. And I was like, oh, poor girl. Like, you know, you do get that <laughs> sense of um, cat's pity for her as well because she is really unattractively described. But the other thing that really struck me was actually her her growth, her arc, her emotional development because, you know, she cat describes how... Um, sad she looks what a blow it is when Renly chooses not to have Brienne at his side during the battle and actually we see her turn into a really strong emotional person not just a physical one Mm. as well so I think that character change is um you know really telling 
Was there anything else about this particular chapter that we should talk about? I appreciated how Martin has um, Catelyn go pray. And like, in a sense, the chapter, I mean, obviously it's from Catelyn's point of view, um, but that this is the right thing to do in a situation like this. I thought, oh, this seems so medieval, right? The power of prayer. Like it was like, they really believed in that, right? For a battle. And so I quite like that. Like, I thought that was a nice touch for um, how she approached. I want to ask you about this. In Martin's world, we find a lot of, I guess, de facto agnostics or atheists. Um, I know in the ancient worlds, the default position was some level of devotion to the sacred. And it was very rare to find someone who sort of would question the will of the gods or mock the gods or say like Renly does, I haven't prayed in ages. But in Martin's landscape, they're kind of all over the place. I'm I'm, I'm curious to hear you, you reflect on someone, I don't know, help, help me with this one. I would say this is one of the most popular questions I get from students in class <laughs> is they will say, well, there must have been atheists. There must have been agnostics. They, they kind of say, why aren't we seeing them? And what I tell the students is they're really hard to find. And I mean, it's a good way of like, helping people reflect on what sources we have left from the Middle Ages. Mm. I mean, most of them came from or, or were preserved by the church. Um, and then it's kind of like a, an like it's a selection, right, is what we're getting. Mm. Um, I think it gets more expansive if you get to the later Middle Ages. But um, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, that's it's I think it's a very difficult question to answer. I, and I think it's one of those places where um, Martin is a little more expansive, like again, with his imagination of like what could be. Um, but I also think like it's, it's, it's a nod to the modern world that we live in too. Like yeah. that the novels are for a modern world. I'm curious what my, yeah, Gabby, do you think this is thing? anachronistic? <laughs> yes. And I think I agree with Val. Like it is a reflection of the modern world we're in. And actually when we were talking about the religiosity of it and yeah, you absolutely have prayers before battle and so forth. But I was just thinking of um, Stannis and the Red Woman and the flag and that kind of um, how it's seen as like an outsider, you know, how it's seen as um, almost paganistic. Yeah. And that's going to really draw lines between Renly and Stannis even further, that kind of religious difference as well. Right. So notable introductions in this chapter, we're introduced to the mythology of the Stormlands for the first time, and notable departures, I didn't see many. I I, know, I mean, I guess, aside from the peach being eaten, uh, no notable <laughs> departures in this chapter. Although, uh, next time we meet Cat, there will be a number of departures, for sure. Um, show differences. Interesting in this chapter that Stannis claims that he told John Arryn about Cersei's infidelity. And this is sort of, you know, this is kind of unsaid in the show. I don't know if this is implied in the show, but it, it's almost like Stannis is claiming that he was the match that lit the conflict because he's the one that revealed to John Arryn uh, this information that got him killed. Yeah, and then did he send he uh, he sent a letter that Catelyn hadn't read yet? Did I read that correctly? Well, yeah, Cat. It seems like Cat is learning for the very first time of the accusation that Joffrey mm -hmm. is illegitimate. 
it seems to me. Mm-hmm. I thought so too. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was fascinating. She, and she's all she's working it out in her head. She's it's sort of in real time. She's thinking, "Oh, that might make sense of Lysa's, you know, warning to me about Cersei." And now, Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Melisandre wants to barbecue Shireen. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think that Davos is going to like that plan. No, um, and I'm not going to like the fact that Davos and Stannis are going to have to argue about this. <laughs> yeah, you can't kill it. You, you, you can't. You can't sacrifice your dog. I'll do whatever the whatever the Red Guard says. <laughs> I'm the king. Yeah, I'll, I'm the rightful heir. Heather, by the way, uh, on record, uh, loves Stannis's voice. Really? Yeah, she doesn't know I can do the impression, so I'm I'm, I'm waiting to pull that out at just the right time. Nice. Just to be clear for the listeners out there, if it was thought of like, ooh, this is going to be something like, you know, to try to woo her. No, this is what I'm going to use in an argument. Um, because if I'm already in a position to be wooing her, I could I could do Paul Lynn's voice and, and probably get away with it. Uh, but if I, if I could break out the Stannis during an argument, I feel like it'll neutralize a little bit, right? Like, even so, if it's completely all right, my fault. let's imagine that Paul Lind and Stannis are both playing Hollywood Squares. <laughs> they they get into an argument on who gets to be center square. Uh, this, this is like pre-production meeting. Yes, that's right. I want to hear <laughs> the argument between Paul Lind and Stannis. <laughs> Look, everybody knows that Paul's time has come and gone. I'm the rifle out of the middle square. <laughs> look, Stannis, look, you're flashing the pan, okay? Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're nothing without the smoke baby, right? The smoke baby's not here, okay? <laughs> <laughs>